Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? It's Sathya Sam here. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm so glad you're here. I am about to share with you an epic, epic interview with Jason Van Ruler. Now, if you don't know who Jason Van Ruler is, he's actually a very influential guy online uh, talking about primarily relationships. But it was funny when we got talking, and this happened off the whatever off camera um when we weren't recording and it also came up while we were recording but this guy is not only csat certified he actually trains people to get their csat certification which is if you don't know csat is certified uh, sex addiction therapist um certification so um all to say is he was like wildly excited to be on this podcast and to talk about something other than relationships not that we didn't talk about that but we kind of got into another niche that he's very passionate and very experienced in and he and i just hit it off in fact after we hit record we right away start talking about other ways that we can um, kind of work together because there was just a good chemistry there. And you're going to feel that in this interview. I'll say one thing I really appreciated about this guy. He gives concise answers. Like he's just not drawn out. He doesn't give irrelevant information. He's a great, great communicator. And I would say in a typical interview, you know, I get to ask anywhere from maybe – you know, four to eight questions, depending on how long winded they are and whatever else. I'd probably ask this guy like 15 to 20 questions. Like we just, we got, we covered so much ground. We got to all kinds of cool places. I know you're going to love this interview. So I'm not even going to waste another minute of your time here. Let's jump into it. My interview with Jason Van Ruler. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose, supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships, and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Perfect. Well, I'm here with a new friend of mine, Jason Van Ruler. And uh, Jason is uh, a very popular content creator online, uh, a new author. Congratulations on your book and just a, a very, very good speaker. So uh, Jason, it's a pleasure to have you here, man. Yeah, well, I'm excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, and I didn't know that you're also a CSAT supervisor because uh, obviously some of your more prominent messages online are in a different vein, which is totally fine. But uh, that's really cool, man. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. So this will be fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And I think, um, you know, I think that is an important part of a conversation that we're not always having uh, and we need to have more of. So I'm I'm all for it. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So maybe I'll start with the book because that was actually what drew me um, and, and thought um, that's what made me think this would be good for the audience because uh, my audience is usually listening because they want some help in the, the sexual area of their life, whether it's a porn addiction, some other misbehavior, affairs, adultery, whatever it might be. And I know that your book, Getting Past Your Past, um, really is relevant for every single human on the planet. We all have decisions from our past that we would like to get over. And I think it's just as relevant, if not more, for um, for my audience. I'm wondering if you can maybe tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind the book in the first place. What, like, you're very versatile in your messaging and uh, the information that you provide your audiences and your clients. What is it that made you say, I, I think of all the things I want to write a book about, this is the one? Yeah, because it just kept coming up over and over again. So so I've been working as a therapist for over a decade now, um, but certainly had my own story, and my own things. And so I knew it to be true for me that for the longest time, what had happened to me, the decisions I had made. So there's kind of both in my life of things that happened to me, as well as poor decisions I made that just yeah. really held me back. Um, and so I started to work through that kind of thinking, well, that was just me. Like, that's not everybody else, just me. Um, and then I became a therapist and I started working with people coming out of prison and I thought, okay, well, that's just me and people coming out of prison that struggle with their past. And then I started to do more work. I started to work with higher level clients, um, who are running companies and making huge impact. And then they're saying the same thing. And I'm like, you know, I think maybe this is like an every person thing that we all struggle with something from our past that holds us back. And so when I'm speaking to an audience, I'll even just say, what is the thing that happened to you or existed in your past that holds you back today? Hmm. And if I pause long enough, we all think of something. We all have something that comes up, Uh, regardless of if we had the best childhood, the worst childhood, if we're super successful financially or we're not at all, 
we all have that thing. And then the question is, what if that was the catalyst to something better instead of the thing that held you back? Mm, wow. Wow. So I don't know if I've ever asked this question before of anyone, and we've talked about the subject before, but why, like logically, it just seems funny that we would struggle with our past. Why, why is it that we struggle with our past? Why is this such a hindrance for people to really move forward in their lives? Because it teaches us things about ourselves and the world that aren't necessarily true. They're true in that context. And so mm -hmm. what happens is because our brain wants to help us out, it just generalizes a lot of lessons and information that we have. And so it continues to apply something that doesn't make sense moving forward. Yeah. And so our past actually holds us back because the information that we're taking away from that experience is either no longer relevant or is not accurate or is not helpful. Hmm. Right. But I guess we have to, we have to update ourselves that to identify that's not relevant or helpful. Otherwise the programming kind of sticks there. Absolutely. Yep. And then we feel stuck, right? And in our stuckness, we have to cope. So we find a way then instead of leaving that situation and, and, you know, adapting and doing something different, we end up trying to just live in the space of being helpless. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people do feel that way. So w when somebody does find that they're, they're, they're helpless, they can't get over their past. You know, we've worked with, I, I can think of, gosh, dozens of conversations come to mind just off the top of my head of somebody saying, you know, Cynthia, if I never had this porn addiction, I know that I would be doing so much better, you know, like just living in that regret stuck and, and kind of feeling that hopelessness of like, man, I'm such a screw up, man, I could have so much more. How does somebody start to dig themselves out of this hole? Yeah, I, I think the thing is that first they have to admit they're in it, you know, so I, I think what we do a lot of times is we pretend we're not or we pretend that it looks different than it does. Uh, and that will get us a ways, right? That that gets us so far but we always kind of hold on to the truth. And, and so I think the first step is just honestly acknowledging, like, I am stuck. Like, this isn't working. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I, I'm curious as to what that's about. And I actually want to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. So is it is it that simple? Like, it, I feel like this is actually the hardest step. I think especially for men, this is a predominantly male audience. And I know for me, like denial has often just been my best friend. You know, it's so much easier to live in kind of that ignorance. The blinders are up because um, you have to kind of swallow your pride, you know, and you're you're a little bit more vulnerable or woundable if you're if you're kind of going to let your guard down and admit what you're going through. Give any advice for guys who maybe are like, I don't know if that's something I really want to do, Jason. It sounds great. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not sure if I'm really <laughs> ready to go there. Hey, join the club. Neither is anybody else, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it is a very human thing to say, like, I don't want to do that, even though it makes good sense why you would. Yeah. I think the thing is, then we just have to make a decision of, are we willing to accept where we're at? So, if you don't want to do it and you won't do it, then are you okay where you're at? Mm. If so, awesome. Like, that's totally fine, right? Then, then live there. Uh, yeah. But I think where the problem comes from is this lack of congruence, because we say, we don't like where we're at and we're also unwilling to do something to make it different. Hmm. And that's where we're really most miserable is in that place of saying, I want something different, but not doing something different. Yeah, for sure. And would you, would you agree that it's typically it's fear, fear, failure, fear, something else that, that would help or that would keep people stuck and sort of hemmed in and not moving forward? Or what else is it that would maybe prevent somebody from getting to the other side, even though maybe they want to, but for some reason, you know, they can't. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's fear, but I think it's also sometimes very legitimate. I mean, sometimes we have experiences where we've grown up and we've literally asked people who were supposed to help us to help us and they didn't. Hmm. And so if a parent or someone important in our life doesn't help us, it is easy to take a lesson from that, that I shouldn't ask for help because no one will. Yeah. And so sometimes even admitting you need help means you have to face one of the obstacles in your way. Yeah. And so that's the challenge is like, it's, it's not just a thing you say like, Oh, just ask for help. It's like, sometimes that is in essence, the whole problem is that you've huh. never felt like you could. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm just thinking about this. Like we, we have this mechanism that programs us to look at our past, to learn from our past, to draw conclusions that can actually serve us. Like none of us would have survived this long if we didn't have that mechanism. But we also, like as we're discussing, it can shoot us in the foot. And we somehow need to have that discernment of like knowing what is serving us and what's hurting us. And what I'm hearing you saying is that that feeling of helplessness or where you feel like you're stuck and you want to move forward and you can't, 
that's sort of the indicator of like, okay, this is no longer something that's serving you. This is probably hurting you more than anything else. On the other side, when you, you know, when you work with the client and you get them out of that pit, you get them in their, their, their full speed ahead and there's a bright future and they feel hopeful and whatever. What is some of the evidence that somebody is no longer stuck in their past? Yeah, I think they see it differently and they have a different relationship with it. I think the other thing too, and, and people hate this, and I also am not a big fan, but it is an indicator, is we feel some guilt and regret about where we've come from. Mm. And, and people are like, oh man, I don't want that. I'm like, oh, I know you don't want that. I don't want it either. <laughs> and also people feel guilt and regret when they've grown past what's happened. Yes. Because we don't feel guilt and regret in the midst of doing the thing we shouldn't be doing. That's the thing is like, we feel it because we know better because we've grown. And so mm -hmm. an indication that we've done some work is we start to look at the past differently. And that might even bring up some things we don't want to feel or think about, but we notice that it's different than it was when we were in it. That's really interesting. So it's just that the perception's different. The way we're viewing things are different. We feel like we're different, that kind of idea. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I work with clients, what I'm always trying to say is, uh, yes, I'm trying to change your mind, but I'm trying to change your heart. And so I think what happens too, is that we level out a little bit. So I always tell clients, we, we have two hands, you know, one is for grace and one is for truth. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of us uh, do one really well and not the other. And so as we start to grow, we have a little balance. We can be honest with ourselves and also have some grace. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. How do you help people bypass the mind and get to the heart? Because I, I love the way you stated that. And I think you and I both know that's where real transformation happens. That's certainly, you know, biblical, clinical, doesn't matter what angle you take that from. What are, what are some of your, uh, I don't know, any piece of advice you have to somebody who's a little bit more heady, which I definitely tend to be. And I have to imagine that I got some listeners out there who would fall in the same category. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, by the way, I haven't always been a therapist. I've always dressed like one. I just haven't always been a therapist. Uh, so, so there was a season of my life where I would have said like, well, that sounds ridiculous, right? Like you're just, oh, change my heart. Why don't I do that tomorrow? Um, so I, so I get like, practically speaking, it sounds challenging, but the truth of the matter is, is changing our heart comes from being willing to hear it a different way and being willing to adopt a new message. And that, that's really, if we have the willingness to entertain that, our heart can change. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us are really hesitant to open up our, our mind or our heart to even the possibility that it might be different than we live it wow. uh, because it's scary. Yeah. How much does the source of that new message matter? Ask me, ask me a little bit more about that. Tell me a little bit more like, about that question. Does it, is it about the person discovering and they get they get a new perspective, you know, they see things a different way, or is it about somebody getting a revelation from God? Is it about working with a therapist who's able to guide you or a friend or a leader or mentor? Like, do, does it matter? And are there any dangers affiliated with that where, you know, if you open up your heart to maybe the wrong person, they could lead you astray and, and you know, apart from a transformation process? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think if someone's really invested in your heart change and telling you what it should be, that's problematic, <laughs> right? We want to kind of watch out for that. Yeah. Um, I think working with a lot of clients and even in my own life, what is true is the heart change is actually usually about something we used to know and forgot, or we used to know and don't believe anymore. Mm. Um, and so I have this question that I'll ask clients and, and it's a little abstract, but I'll say, I want you to close your eyes and imagine your 10 year old self. And so imagine what you would wear and how you look. And so, okay, imagine that you're sitting with your 10 year old self. And what was the thing your 10-year-old self needed that would have changed everything? Hmm. Okay. Um, how does that affect your life today? Now, a lot of times that has a lot to do with changing our heart. Okay. Okay. So it's not usually something that's like we need to discover. It's something we forgot. And I think how God plays a role in this um, is God's like, yeah, I'll meet you in that space all day. Like yeah. that's exactly where I'm going to show up is the space you're afraid to go and you won't be alone there because there's just truth. Like there's mm. just truth and grace in that space and I'll be there. Man, that's so good. That's so good. What would you say to someone? Because I think the the God that you just articulated is is the God that you want in those scenarios. But I think for some people that idea is actually pretty scary because to them, God is angry, judging them for their sins. God has no mercy, no grace, even though we know he has those things. But for whatever reason, you know, the way we understand God is maybe not that way. How does somebody 
invite God in and, and I guess have it feel safe for them to do so? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and sometimes I think that is a challenge for us is how we conceptualize God um, mm-hmm. and where we get our information from. And so sometimes I'll talk with a client about, um, tell me about God, like what's God like? Uh, mm-hmm. And why don't you show me what evidence you have to support that and, and pull from <laughs> some different sources? Because sometimes uh, what happens is we're just simply regurgitating what we've been taught yeah. by people who maybe didn't have the full story. And maybe even had a story that we're not sure we agree with. And so sometimes that process is just identifying um, what is the full story here and what do I think? Um, Something really interesting is that uh, working with so many clients and doing trauma work, uh, people talk about their parents. And so I get to work with a lot of people who talk about their parents. And um, wouldn't you know it, so often I see that how we view our own father on earth is how we view God. Shocker. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And people are often annoyed because I'm like, oh, man, when you describe God, it sounds a lot like this person over here. They're like, oh, Jason, you son of a gun. But here's the thing. We have to be intentional about what do we really think? And also, what would we tell other people? So if we were to talk to somebody else about God in our life, uh, would you tell them what you tell yourself? Mm, Wow. Yeah, that's a big one, right? Because the stories that we tell other people reinforce the stories we tell ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's really good. Um, you mentioned trauma. And so I, I would love to ask you a little bit about that. Um, we talk about trauma a lot on here because I think it's often part of people's stories and we believe it's a totally. huge part of their you know, healing and transformation. Uh, are there any particular modalities or uh, methods that you're using right now to help your clients with trauma? I do a ton of what's called experiential work and psychodrama. Cool. And so okay. these are basically, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're, they're yeah. a lot of movement and uh, symbolism and things like that, um, because I think it just helps us to see things in a different way. Yes. Um, and it also tends to be how I think. And so uh, when I became a therapist, I, I kind of did this thing where I was like, I'm going to figure out just the best ways to do everything. And I'm going to ask everybody I meet and be super annoying about it. And in doing that over and over again, this is just what I found makes the most impact. So if I want to change somebody's heart, those are kind of the ways that I can do that most easily or give them the opportunity to choose that. Yeah, very cool. Um, I'm familiar with both, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about psychodrama for my audience. I think that would be cool for them to just hear about what that what that would look like. Yeah, so psychodrama is essentially replaying a circumstance that we've had and having people fill roles of situations we've experienced, but then changing our relationship with them. And Mm -hmm. so psychodrama actually looks in some ways like a play about your life and about a specific experience that you've had where someone might play your mother or your father, uh, but it allows us the ability to replay that situation, but differently and to see it from a new angle. And it's in seeing it from the new angle that changes our relationship with it, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. That's really cool. We have a close friend of ours who uh, we encouraged. We we finally managed to encourage her enough to do EMDR. And okay. yeah. when she came back from her first session, we were like, so how was it? You know, like our lives have been so changed by my, my wife and myself. And she was like, oh, you know, it was good. We could tell she was like not telling us how she actually felt about it. Um, and we, we couldn't really get it out of her. And then after the second session, she went back. She was like, oh, this this session was amazing. And what we found out is the first session, she was like, you know, it just feels a little bit hokey. Like you're kind of, it's like, where do you feel it in your body? And she's like, I don't know, you know, kind of that left brain, right brain dynamic and uh, feels like she's just making it all up. And I guess what I want to ask you in response to, you know, you, that's a great um, synopsis of psychodrama. How do you get somebody to feel confident about their experience of psychodrama and not just feel like I'm just making all of this up and this is all just super kooky? That's such a good question because it feels super kooky. Um, Here's what I'm going to tell you. So I I get the privilege of supervising other therapists. uh, And this is what I tell therapists is that if you don't believe it, you can't sell it. And so the deal is, is there's 20 different modalities. I've done EMDR, like all of that is good. And there's research to support those. But if you as a therapist or clinician aren't sure about it, nobody else is. Wow. And so the thing is, is that uh, with my personality and how I view the world, uh, those modalities just work really well for me. And so I'm confident about it. So if you were in my office, you'd be like, hey, 
let's go do this. And like, I wouldn't be like, Hey, maybe it'll work. Like I would be confident. Um, I think where we can go wrong is if we're not confident and we're like, Hey, you know, what if, or it could like, that's a tough sell. Um, (laughs) So I would just say that I think that you have to find a clinician that really believes in what they do and preferably um, has done it themselves. So I'll also tell clients, like, I'm not going to ask you to do anything literally that I haven't already done that hasn't benefited my life. That's really good. Yeah, that's really good. We talk about that a lot because people often will ask us, like, how do I know who I should work with or who's the right person to work with? And we always say it's the person that you trust the most, because if you don't trust them, then they're not going to be able to change your life. Um, And I think that's a huge part that breeds trust is when the therapist or the clinician can, clearly has a conviction about what they're doing. So I, I really do agree with that. Um, you're a CSAT supervisor. So I, I got to start picking your brain now um, on that. I'm going to switch sure. gears a little bit. Um, yeah. Are there any particular, like I think on your website, I saw that you work with people who struggle with sex addiction, that kind of thing. I guess I'm just curious, are you seeing um, any, like do you work with anyone who struggles with porn addiction? And do you have any commentary on what you're observing amongst your client base with in regards to the prevalence of pornography and any other impacts it might be having on people's lives? Yeah, well, it's absolutely prevalent, right? Um, yeah. It is It is a thing. It's backed up by statistics research. I mean, I think of that study in Canada they tried to do where they tried to find enough people who hadn't seen porn to do a study. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then they just gave up. They're just like, yeah. ah, you know what? Not enough sample size. I quit. So it is a thing. I think what I'm starting to see, which has been really inspiring, is uh, clients who are younger or even early 20s saying like, this is already a problem. And I don't want to carry it on into my relationships. And so for me, as much as it's heartbreaking, it's also hopeful. uh, Because I say, okay, like way to do this now, instead of waiting till you're a decade into your marriage. Um, And so I see that I also increasingly see uh, the people are admitting it's a problem, even if they support it. So even if they're like, yeah, porn's the best thing ever. I'm starting to see people go, but it also does cause some problems. And so I think that shift is really important because the truth of the matter is, is it just completely destroys relationships. Um, A lot of the work I do is with couples uh, going through that process. And man, that just does a number on a relationship. And it's really hard to get out of that place. Yeah. Why, Why is it so damaging to relationships? Because, you know, when we think about intimacy, so there's kind of six different types of intimacy, but those are to be shared with our person, right? And so if that is a gift for them and they give that gift to us, we are essentially subcontracting that out. Mm-hmm. And that that is not something that helps the relationship, right? So if you just say, hey, you know, I'm going to subcontract out this part of intimacy because uh, I don't like to wait or because it's easier, because it's what I've done since I was a kid that destroys that trust and creates betrayal. Um, And so I think it's just such an intimate part of who we are. Uh, It just, it couldn't not affect the relationship. It just does in a major way. Yeah, I I would totally agree. And then I know the other thing that you said is just that it's very, it is a very hard addiction to overcome. Like it's very hard to to eliminate from your life. Why do you think that is? And I, I, have you worked with people with other addictions? Do you, have you observed any comparisons from this versus something that's maybe more, substance-based or even just a, a similar behavior like gambling or something. Any, any comparisons there? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was telling you about having this desire, like I have to figure out how to do everything all the time. So I have a degree in counseling in a second master's in addiction because I was just oh, nice. hyper-focused okay. on how are we going to do this? And so what's different about this is that we, we need to have intimacy and sex be part of our life. Um, we could never drink again. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a bummer if you really like alcohol, but at the end of the day, you didn't need alcohol. Like that's not really a part of our humanity, but intimacy is. And so the challenge is, is that when we've already established these patterns and ways of thinking, it's really hard to break out of that and do the hard work to get to the same place, but with a little more effort. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would totally agree with that. And I, uh, you glossed over it, but I would love if you're willing to talk about the six types of intimacy, because I think that'll flesh out these thoughts a little bit more. Yeah, so there's, um, and I'm going to do my best to remember them in order here, but they're uh, physical intimacy, which is uh, a lot of men are wired for physical intimacy. Um, I know when I do keynotes, and I'm like, I'm talking about intimacy. Lots of guys are winking at me and they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, you're going to be disappointed really soon. Just wait. Uh, so there's physical intimacy. 
there's emotional intimacy, right? Which is our emotional connection. There's spiritual intimacy, which is how we correct, uh, connect over our spiritual beliefs. Hmm. We have creative intimacy, how we connect over creative pursuits and arts and music and things like that. We have experiential intimacy, which is how we connect over doing new things or traveling or learning. And then we have intellectual intimacy, which is how do we connect over maybe books or academic things, ideas, things like that. Okay. And so we have, I think that was six. Was that six? That was six. Yep, you got it. Okay, yeah, yeah it. nailed it. So, okay. <laughs> so there's all these different types. And what I find with clients is we tend to be wired for top two. We, we tend to have a number one and a number two that are really important. And it's not to say the others aren't, but those two are really important. And so where the struggle can become is if we are high on physical intimacy as being really key, but we're low on emotional intimacy. Because mm -hmm. what the struggle becomes is it is easier to look at pornography to meet that need than to do the emotional thing we're not good at. Okay. Okay. Got it. So... There's the six different types of intimacy. It sounds like in a perfect, like, obviously you're always going to have like things that you maybe lean into a bit more, but generally, like if you can be relatively satisfied in all six areas, that's, that would be like a healthy, stable person. And when there's a disparity, we will compensate for it somehow. And I guess porn sounds like can be subcontract, if you will, to, to fill one of these, or, or I guess, I suppose it could be even multiple types of intimacy. You got it. Yep, Absolutely. And and it's tough to fight against because of the convenience and accessibility of it. Yeah. Okay. And so I, that's what I was going to ask you about a little bit because you're um, you're training people who are getting certified, obviously, to help people in this area very specifically. And I, I what I wanted to ask is like, what are the major challenges that you're observing CSATs running into with their clients when they're trying to help them? Well, I think. I think working through betrayal is really important as to how we do that. The, the field has changed uh, in recent years with how we view working through that and recognizing that it is very, very traumatic for the partner or the spouse. Yes. So I think, I think acknowledging that traumatic piece and getting the couple a lot of help is really important. Um, I think also just we're better understanding the brain and how we are really fighting a battle with our brain on some of this too. Um, and so normalizing some of that struggle, but also coming up with new ways to, to do it better. Because yeah. I think in the past, sometimes we've attempted just to tell people to will themselves to be different when the truth is it's bigger than that. Yeah, for sure. And how would that play into some of the things we talked about earlier about, um, you know, the importance of changing your perspective or having a different viewpoint on things? Is that part of rewiring your brain or, or would you separate that and say there's actually some other things that are probably a little bit more direct? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. So in doing the work and in doing the intensives that I do uh, with people who are struggling with this stuff, it often comes down to pornography is a really good way, good, and I know that not good, right? But it's an effective way to cope with a feeling or belief that we don't want to have. Hmm. And so when we can get to the heart of what is leading us to that place and change our relationship and the message we start to see less reliance on it because we don't feel like we have to cope. Yeah. Yeah. That, that does make a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. And you, so yeah, you talked about it rewiring the brain and then um, I'm, I, I lost my train of thought now. Oh, the partners. Yeah. The betrayal part and how, how important that, that component is. Um, what would you say to somebody who is going through their addiction? They are starting to get help and Maybe they can acknowledge, I've done a lot of damage to my partner. You know, she's not the same person. She's clearly affected by this, but they don't feel like they really have the capacity to be able to support her while they go through their addiction. Or maybe they don't fully understand it. They're like, why is this such a problem for you? I'm the one with the problem. Um, could you shine just a little bit of a light on what might be going through uh, the partner's mind and what, what are they experiencing when an addict comes clean and is starting to get help? Yeah, I mean, not being a partner, I'm just going to be guessing based on what I've heard and, and seen. So I want to just be careful about that. Uh, but what I kind of hear over and over again is um, it just it's something they didn't expect and, and something that is completely overwhelming. Um, and the challenge is, is that when someone discloses their behavior, they feel better because it's a burden that they're letting go of that they've had. 
Uh, and in essence, they're just putting the burden on their person, right? So they say, wow, this is so hard to carry around for so long and I feel terrible. Uh, and so I'm giving this to you now and I'm going to live in the light and now you do something with it. And so I think realizing and trying to have some empathy for you just put all of this struggle on them and they didn't ask for it. They don't know what to do with it. And they didn't even have any fun getting it. They just (laughs) received this from you. Um, And so that's the space they're in. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, um, in, in a, in a situation where there's a, there's a couple. And so the person who has the addiction is married or at least in a committed relationship. Um, do you have any particular philosophy around, you know, work on work individually on your things and then work on the relationship or work on the relationship and the individual parts together? Or do you have any, any opinions about how they, that should be approached? Yeah. You got great questions, my friend. Uh, oh, good. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> these, these are well-informed questions. Everybody sees this differently. I'm going to tell you uh, that we uh, we have hurt the person we're in relationship with. And so we will only heal in relationship. And so mm-hmm. I think that um, initially we probably need to do some, some kind of triage work with somebody. So if they're actively acting out um, and they're unwilling or uh, not making progress at discontinuing that, couples work is going to be really hard, but if they are developing some sobriety, I think we need to do couples work earlier than later uh, because we have to be relational. And I've seen so many times that people establish recovery and sobriety, but they lose their relationship because they try to do it last. Yep. Yeah. Very true. So it sounds like get the ball rolling in recovery, but don't, don't be uh, late to, to start working on the relationship. Like be, be quick. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that those are the conversations we need to have. And also one of the things that we need to develop if we've hurt our person significantly is empathy. And we only really develop that in having these conversations. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely seen that as well. What, what, would a guy do if he, so he comes clean, you know, and they have the conversation and basically the Maybe he even makes a suggestion like, hey, I know this can't be easy for you and let's make sure that you get the support you need or something to that effect. And the response more or less is, no, 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 that you're the one with the issue, like I'm good. Um, Or, you know, we've heard of stories where the spouse says, hey, thanks for telling me, but I don't want to hear anything else. Like you go figure it out, go do your thing, but like, blah, 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 you know, fingers in the ears kind of thing. Um, What can a guy do in that case? Because I have to imagine that there would be some ways to eventually break those walls down, but at the same time, you know, they're hurt and they're responding appropriately for the hurt they're experiencing. Um, how, do, how do they tether that tension and maybe get things to a, a place where she would be on board to get some help as well? Yeah, I think you love them where they're at and you invite them. So the thing I say, uh, again, not always popular, but I say you lead the way. So if you think it's a really good idea to do the work and you would like them to do it, then you first. Yeah, and invite them, right? right? So right. you say, hey, I'm going to go change my whole life and I'm going to do all the things I need to do to get into recovery. And I think you should too. No, I don't want to. Okay, well, I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to keep inviting you. Yeah. Because sometimes what they need to see most is that you'll do it. Right. And sometimes what we do instead is we say, well, if you're not, I won't. Or we'd be better if you did. And none of those things are really loving the person where they're at. So I think you just mm-hmm. say like, I love you. I don't know how to explain where you're at because it's your experience, not mine. I want to invite you to this place. Uh, And by the way, I'm going to do the work either way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when couples do start working together, we, uh, I mean, we've had lots of different um, people on here talk about everything from like the disclosure process to whether or not you should have physical intimacy and, you know, all the different kind of questions that start to circulate when you start working on this as a couple. Um, I guess my question to you, I'll, I'll broaden it, although and you're welcome to, to go on to any of the top, topics I just mentioned, but um, what are some of the big challenges that you observe couples run into when they do finally uh, commit to this journey and, and get the ball rolling? What typically are they being challenged by? That's a great question. It's a big question. I think I think just kind of generally speaking, willingness is really important. Um, so mm-hmm. are we really willing to do what we're saying we're willing to do? Yeah. Um, so that's really important. I think too, you know, uh, it is different uh, to ask for something than it is to receive it. And so sometimes it's even hard to receive it. We see the other person doing the thing and we just, it's so hard to receive that when we've been wounded. Um, mm-hmm. And then sometimes I think what happens is we get really caught up 
and it's going to sound funny for a therapist to say this, but we get really caught up in feelings and we don't give much attention to the facts. And mm-hmm. so when we get stuck in the feelings, sometimes those will misguide us because the facts are sometimes that the work is happening. We just don't feel it yet. Oh, that's really interesting because I, I would agree with that. I think in our um, awareness of how bad we've been as a society at acknowledging emotions, validating them, um, you know, just seeing everybody seems to have that suppression syndrome. I do agree that we probably maybe swung the pendulum a little bit too far and have given them a little bit too much place. What does that look like then? How, how does somebody discern like how do they know when they're getting too wrapped up in the feelings and ignoring the facts? What would that look like? Yeah, in recovery, I think it's just honoring that both are valid, right? So you you can have whatever feelings you have, and those are all okay. Um, and then let's reconcile those with the facts. And so mm-hmm. where I see this a lot is um, I feel like I don't trust this person. Okay, I feel that way. Uh, and that is valid. And that is fair. Okay, you don't trust them. Um, and then I might say of the things you've asked them to do, factually speaking, have they done them? Mm. That's not a popular conversation. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, they have but I still don't feel it. Um, and so then we have to wrestle with that. We have to say, do I need to ask for something different then? Or have my feelings not caught up yet? Or what is going on here? Because both are really important information. And does the person typically know when you ask them, can they start to identify like, okay, yeah, I guess I, I guess maybe my heart just has not caught up yet. It's still, it's still processing. Or how, how do you get that clarity? Because that, that's a very um, that's a very familiar situation. And I think even if we weren't talking about a recovery context, I think uh, even for me, I've had I've had a personal experience where it's taken my wife a long time for her to kind of feel like she can trust me in a specific area. Um, and I've shared about it before, but we basically postponed our wedding um, because she was really sick, and I I just wanted things to get a little bit more stable before we got married. Um, but she she already had this fear that I was going to leave her and that I would I would somehow you know, weasel my way out. And then when I postponed, it kind of reinforced it. And we got married four months later, it didn't end up being a big deal. But it's taken years into our marriage for us to be able to to talk it through and for her to feel like, okay, I know you're actually never going to leave. It's been in the back of her head for a while, even though uh, I, I don't I didn't have the language before. But yes, like, even though I think factually, I could say like, hey, I've been really stable. I've never like, I've never made a threat to like, disconnect or distance or whatever. Um, but does does it is it always that clear when when somebody is processing like or trying to figure out if it's facts or feelings or does that take time? I, I think it takes a willingness to to actually look at it and and be honest about what's coming up um, yeah. and and just knowing that that's okay. I, I work with a lot of couples where they say, um, Jason, because we're trying to build trust, we're keeping track of some things, and they've done everything factually speaking, they've done everything, um, and yet I still don't trust, and I really wrestle with that. Hmm. And so, okay, let's talk about that. But we need to acknowledge both, right? And so I think when we're able to acknowledge both, we can meet each other in that space because then the person who's trying to rebuild trust says, okay, okay, at least you see I'm doing something. I get Mm -hmm. that you don't feel it yet and I wish you did, but you see that I'm doing something. And eventually that'll start to change. Uh, But in the meantime, I'll just keep doing the things. Yeah, yeah. So even getting that acknowledgement piece is helpful. Like, it's not like, oh, once you lay out the facts, then all of a sudden, boom, she's just going to trust you. But it can at least help. It can at least be a step kind of forward and and push things in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is very challenging to change how someone feels, right? If if we do a session or do a session with a client, they say, hey, I feel this way, make me feel different. Uh, My longstanding joke is, uh, well, do you want to feel disappointed? Because that's the only thing I can guarantee. (laughs) And and they're like, I don't want that, Jason. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to do it otherwise. So the thing is, it's very hard to change how someone feels. Um, So we have to look at that fact part and just say, like, well, how how does it actually look on paper? And if our feeling isn't there yet, that's okay. But we need to acknowledge both. Yeah, that's really, really good. Okay, I want to switch gears one more time here just a little bit. Um, and you, I didn't, I didn't mention the subject beforehand, but it just feels relevant now that we've come this far. How do you help people navigate transitions in life? And the reason I'm asking this is, well, number one, I just became a father like 12 days ago. Um, oh man, so, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Thanks. So I'm going through it a little bit myself right now, but we get yeah. asked this a lot and, um, th- there's various reasons, but I, I think the relevance for this conversation is we've been talking about people being transformed, right? A transformation of the heart. We're talking about people changing their marriage, right? Like there's no such thing as restoring your marriage once you've admitted what's going on and you're working on it. You're, you're creating a new reality, a new normal. 
And I think that sometimes the stress of change, maybe sometimes it's the grief of what, what's left behind. Um, that's something we didn't even touch on earlier, but we're talking about getting over your past and just the, the myriad of, of emotions and challenges that come with change and change is sort of this inevitable thing in life anyway. Um, I have to imagine this would come up with some of your clients, especially the ones that you're working with a bit more longer term, because we know like nobody can go through this process, be transformed and then not go through major life changes, whether it's career, family, ministry, business, whatever. Um, I guess I'm just curious if you have any major guidelines or frameworks for helping people go through major changes in life effectively. Yeah, well, they have to decide first if that's who they want to be or not. So, so I think there's two ways to live. Uh, one of the ways is that we can do everything that we can to stay the same. Um, and that'll be predictable, uh, but it'll take energy. And sometimes it'll take a lot more energy. Or we can be a person who says, I'm going to change and grow. And that will take energy and discomfort too. Hmm. And so it's just kind of like, what worldview do we want to have? Uh, and people have each and both cost you something. And so if I'm committed to growth, um, then I can expect that there's going to be seasons of discomfort. Yeah, I can just know that. And in fact, I might argue that I feel like we're called to that. We're, we're called to that season of discomfort. And so when we feel that, instead of thinking that's a bad thing, what it probably is, is just an indication of our growth. And so when I work with clients long term, what we actually try to work on is just getting used to the discomfort. <laughs> we don't try to avoid it because avoiding it means we're not growing. And if we've decided we're going to be people who grow, then there should be discomfort because yeah. that's what it feels like to grow. What does it look like when somebody has done this well and they, they are getting acclimatized to discomfort? Yeah, they're trying new things. They're, they're willing okay. to entertain ideas. Um, our, our answers switch to maybes. We were curious. We start to lean into, we could do it differently. It could be better. Uh, we could have deeper relationships. But instead of running from that discomfort, uh, we just look at it and we just say like, yeah, that's part of the deal. But all the best stuff is on the other side. Mm, that's so good. How, how do people preserve their progress when they go through change? Uh, we we just heard the, an incredible story out of our community this week. I think it was this week or last week, but somebody who just went through major life change and and it's a it's been a bit of an ongoing family situation and very uh, a lot of flip flopping. And in previous seasons, when he had gone through these major changes that sometimes would come about, he would just he would downward spiral. He'd get derailed and he'd go back into porn and masturbating and all that kind of stuff. And you know, a testament of the work he's been putting in. Uh, went through this major life change. It came out on top. Went the full journey of it totally clean and um and we were we were really impressed by him you know and it obviously it's not the first time that's happened here but um he just had something he had something about him that really struck me you know like just this sort of like grounded confidence and i thought huh i wonder what happened in that story i wasn't working with him directly it was someone on my team but i was just wondering i, I wonder what happened that caused him to to do that and to be able to go through with such confidence and come out on top and um i guess i'm curious if there's anything you've observed any qualities or characteristics or I don't know if it's environmental kind of stuff that that would cause people to be able to endure challenges and still preserve and maybe even increase the progress that they've made in their own personal development. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Two words come to mind. Uh, first one is identity. Our identity changes. Right. Mm -hmm. So we begin to talk about ourselves in a way that actually propels us forward. Mm -hmm. So our identity is that we are a survivor. Our identity is that we're resilient. Our identity is that we have grit. So we change our belief about our identity. And the way that we cement that then is we develop community that sees us for that new identity, wow. right? Yeah. Sometimes people try to change while having the same community that kept them stuck. And what huh. happens is not only are they battling against themselves, but they're battling against their community. And so if we really want to create lasting and sustainable change, we need a community that supports it. Yeah. For instance, if you were trying to quit viewing pornography, but all your friends think it's not an issue, good luck. <laughs> right. Good luck, right? Because you only have to make a phone call for someone to tell you that the thing that you think isn't okay is. Yeah. And so now imagine you have a different community that feels the same way you do. Mm. Now they are encouraging you and keeping you in the space of, yep, we're doing this. We have the same goal. We're in alignment. And so the community part, I think, is slept on a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and we try to keep the same people who kept us stuck 
Uh, and that's not to say we have to like abandon people, but they just can't be part of the process if they have a different goal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why is community so impactful? Because I would say that's a message that we're hearing more, like even in the local church, we hear a lot of talks about community. We certainly emphasize that, like we do not do anything without at least a group component or a communal element. It's just so vital in the recovery process. Um, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think community is just so imperative? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's how we were called to live. I think so that has a big part to do with it. But I also think it's how we learn and it's how we love and it teaches us all the things we need to know. Huh. And and yeah. so time and time again, what I will find is that I'll do a workshop and you probably see this. I'll, I'll meet with a group of people and they'll say, I've heard all of this information that you said. Uh, but when I heard it from that person, now now I feel it. Now yeah. I see it. And and yeah. the the reason is just because we we take that wisdom from each other. And so that's the part we really need most right now. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Jason, when you look ahead, uh, I'm asking you to put your prophetic hat on for, for a minute. When you look okay, ahead, um, and I think, I think we all know like the, the landscape of mental health and mental illness is a very hot, hot button topic. Uh, certainly we're more aware of it, but I think there's also, there's a prevalence argument there um, just given the level of stimulation and stress and whatever else that we're exposed to. What, where do you see in the landscape of, of mental health and, and mental illness looking at the next 10 to 15 years? Do you feel like we're going in the right direction? Are we, are we making the right adjustments? Are we learning about how to cope and, and you know, handle everything in this new kind of technology-driven world? Or do you, I don't know, do you feel like, man, we still have some catching up to do and here's some things that I would love to see humans you know, acknowledge or understand or get better at? Uh, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm just asking a blanket question, but I, I'm just wondering what your predictions are when you look 10, 15 years down the road. Oh, this is great. Because whatever prediction I'll make, we'll come back like a decade from now and be like, did that happen? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I think in some ways it's getting worse and in some ways it's getting better. So that, that's a real therapist answer for you. I was going to say, great clinic answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me answer with a question. I think it's kind of like I said about, uh, we, we know the answer we just forgot. And I think what we're starting to find is that some of this stuff, like this isn't new. Like mm. we've known this but it's not super flashy. It's not new technology. It's just yeah. the basics. And I think what makes me hopeful is people are starting to see that. People are starting to see like, hey, it doesn't have to be that complicated. This is just what we need. Uh, yeah. But I think there's also a fight of it has to be new and it has to be shiny. And that's actually the thing driving us apart. And, and yeah. so I think what I would love to see is better balance between the two of um, really retaining like who we are as humans and what we really need before we get too engrossed in the technology piece. Yeah. Do you think, what do you think about all the labeling? Cause I, I think there's, I think there's um, it feels like there's a new term coming out every day for a new mental illness or condition. Um, and obviously I, I see value in labels. They, they, they give an understanding. And I think a lot of people find validation being like, Oh, that's what I have. I think I've seen a lot of people just going on the identity piece kind of, um, you know, make their label their identity as well at the same time. And I think it can pigeonhole people. But I don't know if you have any any light to shed on that. Like, what, what do you make of that? Because I think that's something we're going to be dealing with in this area as well moving forward. Yeah, I, I think as we get farther along, you have to really specialize to be different, right? So so whereas yeah. you, you could be a therapist now, you have to be now. Now I'm a CSAT, but I'm not just a CSAT. I'm a this, this, and you just get so narrow Right. Yeah. And, and we do that same thing with labels. And, and so the thing with the labels is that uh, I see people label people or even label themselves without always a lot of experience um, or, you know, they don't have the clinical data to back that up. And it's not a positive label. And so the challenge is sometimes this is just an extension of these things we tell ourselves that isn't helpful. Right. Mm. So we're, so we're now just identifying with a label that keeps us really stuck. Yeah. And so while I think that we do sometimes need to identify patterns and themes because it helps us know where to look for solutions, if we're not careful and we do it too much, it also keeps us stuck yeah. because sometimes we say, well, here's my 10 labels um, and you just go, oh man, that just feels kind of overwhelming and, yeah. and people stay stuck there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Jason, this has been amazing. You're so articulate. I'll, I'll, just a wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate what you're doing here. Uh, the book is called Get Past Your Past. I know it's on Amazon. Is that correct? Is that where you want people to go if they want to get the book? Yeah, that's great. Yep. Yeah. And if people do want to find out more about what you're doing, what you're up to, if they want to stay plugged in and connected, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, I'm on Instagram every day uh, with relationship uh, advice and tri- uh, tips and tricks and all that good stuff. So that's jason.vanruler. And then uh, you can learn more about me at my website, jasonvr.com. Amazing. We'll put links to, in the show notes for all of that. Jason, thanks for your great work, man. And thanks for taking a bit of time to be with us today. Yeah, this was fantastic. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Jason. What an amazing guy. I really, really like his uh, spirit and his candor and obviously his information. Very, very knowledgeable. Um, He and I are actually going to be doing an Instagram live uh, very, very soon. And so if you're not following us on Instagram, make sure that you fix that so that you guys get notified when we go live together there. Um, And um, he's actually going to come and speak to my clients. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, We got a lot to learn from this guy. So that should be great. Make sure you go check out his stuff. Go check out his book. Go check out his Instagram account and uh, plug in with this guy. And if maybe you heard this interview and you started thinking to yourself, you know what? I need to get some more proper help to quit pornography. Maybe you've tried the internet filters, you've tried the accountability systems, maybe even tried a therapist for a little bit. But you know that, um, you know, as a guy, like guys generally need a system, we need some specific instructions, we need a kind of method to follow. And I I find that a lot of guys um, almost get misled when they try to quit pornography, because they don't get a system, they, they kind of get like the well, what do you want to do in our session today? Or, you know, just slap on this internet filter, it should all kind of come together for you. Um, so if you're looking for something more systematic, you know that your brain just needs something, needs a process to follow. You want some coaching. You want a community of men who are, um, you know, wild about their integrity, very serious about their relationships and passionate about being free once and for all. If that's something that you want to be a part of, there's a link in my show notes for you to book a call with my team. I'd love for you to do that. We would love to speak with you and see if deep clean is a good fit. And, um, you know, the reality is it's not a good fit for everybody. Not everybody makes it through. Not everybody decides to move forward. We're okay with that, but we would we would hate for you to be on the fence um, or to be really struggling and in need of help and to not at least make an effort and not at least get a chance to see if Deep Clean could be your next step. So the link is in the show notes. We have limited slots available at pretty much any given time. And so if there aren't any um, slots when you go to click on that link, check back in probably about a week or two and you should find some more availability. Uh, but we'd love to speak with you if there are some, some slots there. So you can go check that out now. In the meantime, guys, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you share this with somebody that you think might benefit from what we discussed. And I will see you very, very soon. Take care. God bless. Hey everybody, it's Sathya again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast, and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.